It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I want to discuss something that's long been debated. What's the better investment? Owning real estate or stocks? And later, speaking of homes, many of us have been working at home. About a third of us have been able to have the privilege of being able to work at home part-time or full-time because of the pandemic. Looks like it's here to stay. So who pays the cost of you having to equip a home office, having a home office? I'm going to talk about that. So I will talk to people that are fellow real estate investors, which I am as well as being big into owning index funds, stocks, that sort of thing. And people really get in their head that, oh man, owning real estate, that's the ticket to wealth. Or there are other people who say, I'm not doing that. I'm only owning stocks. And there's nothing wrong with doing both, being an investor in enterprises and owning real estate. But there are disadvantages to owning real estate different than owning traditional investments. Yes, it is true. Owning stocks, whether you own them through mutual funds, index funds, exchange-traded funds, whatever, that it is in the short term far more volatile than owning real estate. Now, there was that period of time after the banking scandals where we had the real estate bust starting in 2007-8 that continued till 2012. That was a very unusual situation and happened because of the banks. And there's not going to be another situation like that with real estate. But that was very unusual what happened. But owning real estate as an investment, and over the years I've owned any of a number of rental properties. At one time I had nine properties. It was great having them. You have, hopefully you have a tenant covering your ongoing costs of the property. The property rises over time. If you have a mortgage on it, that mortgage is paid over time by the tenant. And as I've heard it referred to by many real estate investors, it is a get-rich-slow program. And I think that's a very pithy and clever way to look at owning real estate. And I think there's real value if you are someone who has been living on less than what you make, you've accumulated assets, to diversify them beyond just having a stock portfolio. And so having rental property is a great thing to have. But know that it's completely different. You know, you buy investments now, in most cases, commission-free. The ongoing costs of those investments, basically nearly zero if you buy them the right way now. And when you have a rental property, things break. You have to fix things. They age out. I've had to renovate kitchens and bathrooms and rental properties. Expensive to do. 
You have tenants who don't pay, and you may have to evict them. You have a tenant who leaves, and then you have a period of time before a new tenant comes in, and there's not income coming in. So in the sale process of selling a property, this is an abnormal cycle right now where you put it for sale, and bam, it's gone. Normally, it's a thing, you know, with the costs in, the costs out. And so you just got to know what you're doing. The longer you stay in an ownership cycle with a rental property, the more the costs in and costs out become less significant. And you can, at lower risk, in the shorter term, have something that is an asset that can be fantastic to have versus being in the market. But when you look over the long term, and Barron's did an analysis that was a 50-year analysis. And so it deals with the various stock market manias, the 1987 crash where stocks fell 40% in days. It deals with the dot-bomb era, if you're not aware of that, back in 2000 when technology stocks lost 95% of their value on average. It deals with all these various cycles that happen with investing versus real estate. And listen to this. Over the last 50 years, stocks on average gained, gained when you average out all the downs and all the ups, 12.5% average annual gain. Real estate, 5.5%. And we've been in a remarkable cycle for real estate and still investing in companies generates a long-term return more than twice as great. And this holds, you'll find this accurate, you go back almost any long period of time over an investing lifetime is what we could call this. You're going to find that both do well for you, but over the long, long haul, investing in companies that are creating new products, new services, that that will make you more money. And without you having to go replace a stove or fix a whatever or having a water leak, or I've had them all over the years. I've had everything that could happen with a rental property. And I must be a glutton for punishment because I'm still in the rental business. I think it's a, a great thing to do as a diversification. But most of what I do is investing in the market, both domestic and international. And Krista, you want to take us a completely different direction here. Yes, although it's something that you are familiar with too as a dog owner. This is from Nancy in California. I own show dogs in Central California. No local pet stores can get Purina Pro planned foods. They say Purina just won't supply it. Is the Ukraine situation or supply chain issue creating the empty shelves in the pet food aisles? It's not Ukraine. It is basic supply chain issues that weigh predate Ukraine. They started during the pandemic with the shipping problems, the factory problems, because uh, most, I didn't know this till the pandemic. We talked about it like two years ago first, that most pet food comes from overseas. Mm. Who knew? 
And so there's been issues with getting the pet food from the foreign manufacturers, getting the pet food canned. And mainly, if you've noticed, the biggest problem is canned pet food, not the dry pet food. I know we have two dogs. One of them is, has health issues, pancreatic issues or something, that including other things high-maintenance dog, anyway, has to have this prescription dog food where the vet has to write a prescription for it, and getting it is so difficult, and we run low, and, and we're really lucky when we can find a shipment, and so I don't know when this will ease, but this is definitely a problem most magnified with the canned wet, as they call wet food, and it's not just that field, you know, a lot of parents of young babies are facing a terrible problem right now getting formula. There was a recall from one of the big manufacturers. Formula was already in short supply. A lot of retailers have put in uh, purchase limits on it. And what happens with this happens. I mean, a, a young parent with a baby, you go into full. Oh, yes. I, panic I mode. I, I hate to use the word panic, but that's really no, what it is. Yeah. It's panic it's buying. Child. And so it creates a more intense shortage. I don't know that there's been an equivalent with the pet food, but as we move more and more into COVID, moving into the rearview mirror, hopefully the supply chain issues with the pet food will let up. The baby formula was an unusual circumstance because of a safety recall. And so it's going to take a while to rebuild those inventories, but they should rebuild. And this question's from Brad in Tennessee. What annual salary level is it beneficial to decrease your adjustable gross income by contributing to a traditional 401k as opposed to a Roth 401k? As a single income earner, I know there are maximum income limits to be able to contribute to a Roth IRA, but after you max out your 401k contribution limits, whether they're traditional or Roth, what is your next recommendation if you're unable to contribute to a Roth? Would you consider an employer-sponsored 457B? Okay, so your taxable income is a single individual. I just pulled up the tax brackets. And until your adjusted gross income goes over 165000 for a single individual, keep doing the Roth version of the 401k, if you're still income, I guess at that point you're not income eligible for the Roth IRA. Doing the 457b, as long as the plan is not a high cost plan, you got to look in and dig and see what the costs are on the, the employer provided 457. If the costs are reasonable, then that would be an alternative. If the 457b plan fees are not reasonable, I would actually prefer you go into a straight investment account with extra money and put money into traditional index funds, a total stock market index fund, maybe an international index fund, spread the money out among various ones. I mean, the old rule of thumb is you do the domestic, you do an international and then you do a bond fund, although people are really negative on bond funds right now. But why did I use that amount of money, the 165, 165000 Because up to that point, you're at a 24% max federal tax rate. 
And at that rate, and that's not even your blended rate, because, you know, the, the rates phase in, I think it's smarter money to do Roth than it is to do traditional, because the tax rates today are unusually low by historical numbers. And this one's from Pam in California. My husband lost his pod key to our 2021 vehicle. The dealer will charge us $380 plus a service call to replace it. Is there an alternative option other than going to the dealer? This cost is outrageous. Well, Pam, I'm I'm glad you're not trying to replace your husband for losing (laughs) the expensive key. The good news is there are now third-party services that can replace most key fobs and they usually price what they do at 30 to 50% below what the dealers charge. And they can do most of these fobs. There are various sources for it. I know a lot of times they'll do roadshow at Sam's Club where you can have a key made that looks almost kind of sketchy. There's this van in the parking lot and they have signed, get a new key fob here. <laughs> but anyway... It is on the up I've done and up. this too. I've done this very recently, actually, um, for our Mazda. I went to a locksmith, like lots of locksmiths in the area sell the key fobs. And then some of them also can uh, program, program it for you. Because a lot of times a dealer won't program one that you didn't buy there because they sell them on eBay. I mean, you can find the actual key fob in many places, but it's finding someone to do that programming. Right. So you don't have to, you're not a captive of the dealer most of the time for these very expensive key fobs. In the case of, uh, we've had the question from people with Teslas, where it's a unique kind of programming situation. And yes, you can buy the cards or key fobs on eBay. But ironically enough, many times they're more expensive on eBay than they are buying them direct Mm -hmm. from Tesla. It's just an unusual circumstance in that case. And Got a question for you. Are you one of the lucky roughly one in three workers who can work at home full-time or part-time working from home, not having to commute? Well, there's a big push and pull, and I took the question a few times early in the pandemic. Who pays for the stuff you need to have at home to work from home instead of commuting? We're going to address that. There's been a debate ever since a lot of offices and areas went into lockdown originally in March of 20. There was a segment of the American people who didn't have to worry about unemployment at the time that, like, what was 100 million people ended up underemployed, unemployed, whatever, some huge number during the early phase of COVID. And we had all that pandemic relief money and all that. Because people suddenly had no income at all. But then there were people like me. And I represented roughly a third of workers who were able to continue working from home. And here we are in what is the endemic phase of COVID, meaning that it's something we're going to have to live with and will apparently morph into having a mortality rate instead of many times the death rate of the flu, that it'll be similar to a flu-like thing moving forward. But now those workers who were able to keep working from home overwhelmingly, they're like, I don't want to go back to the office. 
and they want to work from home and at most a hybrid work where they might go to the office day a week, two days a week, uh, several days a month, but the rest of the time they're working from home. And now I'm reading in the LA Times that there's all these lawsuits by my fellow workers who've been privileged enough to be able to work from home that say, this isn't fair. I have to set up an office in my home. I have to take square footage in my home and I'm using it for the boss. They should pay me rent on the space in my home I'm using. They should pay for the desk I sit at while I work from home. They should pay my internet bill because I'm using it for them during the workday. And on and on and on. So I love this. 20 class action suits known of so far suing employers for people being able to work from home. Okay, so let's think about it this way. I live in a major metro area, let's just say. Well, I do. But anyway, I'm working from home in a major metro area. What am I not having to do all those days a week and a month? I'm not having to commute. Think about the cost per mile of putting your vehicle on the road. Think about the time. Forget the money. Think about the time, the time suck in your life of the time you were commuting that you're now not having to. Your commute is walking from the kitchen or the bedroom to the little nook in your home or whatever where you're working. Sometimes people need to get a clue. This is a great thing. I mean, employers, many of them want people back and they've had to adjust to reality. They're going to lose a lot of their workers if they say they have to come back in the office full time. It's just a reality. So if people look at it as a real detriment having to go into the office, how in the world should you also be able to say, and on top of that, that you're letting me now work where I want to work, you're going to pay me for it. (laughs) Here's the big risk. And this is the big risk. When you choose to work at home, substantially all your time if it's a choice now and your employer offers a hybrid working environment i guarantee you the person who's present more in the office is the one who's much more likely to get promoted if that's important to you and get bigger raises if that's important to you than the person working at home it is flat out human nature that people that are not present before the boss are more likely to be forgotten about at time for promotion and raises than the person who's there. Now, if your boss is also working at home and you're not going to be present around them anyway, if you were in the office, then fine, work at home and everybody wins. I've shared with you that we surveyed our employees with my two companies and Did we have anybody who wanted to come back full-time, Krista? I don't think we had a single person, not one. Mm -mm. 
and we gave up our all our office space at the end of 20 and we have just one we have small a space, space for the consumer action center for tim and, clark and for the uh podcast and for the podcast yep and other than that we're saving you know thousands of dollars every month real money over the course of the year not having the office space and the employees seem much happier working this way and we have employees around the country so mm-hmm. they couldn't actually commute to a central office but and we've used and we have used some of the offset of the rent to do events to bring people together occasionally because you do miss that sense of camaraderie at least we miss that on our team and, and i so- do think you over time lose some company culture and you also potentially have more turnover over the long haul when you're not present with each other human beings are social animals and having time together is important and that's why doing events together doing meetings in person together i think is really valuable me too but wanting your employer to write you a check for rent for a portion of your place where you're getting to work from home i don't get it don't worry i'm not going to ask you for Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll go to some questions now. This is from Shirley in New Jersey. I'm a Clark groupie and love your words of wisdom. I had set up my Vanguard sign in to send me a text message only when Vanguard did not recognize the computer I'm using. I only use one computer to sign in and never on my phone. I just heard you talk about how important two factor sign on is. And I was wondering if I'm safe now or if I should change that to text message every time I sign in. I would change the text message every time. And uh, surely we did address recently the problems with texting two-factor authentication and that industry is going to move to more secure ways of verifying you each time. So it's certainly not perfect or flawless doing two-factor with a text, but I think it's worth doing. And I never have a computer that I register with Vanguard is one that they don't need to verify with me with a text because Vanguard has not taken the position of Fidelity and Schwab that is an ironclad protection of your money if your account is hacked into. And until Vanguard changes its stripes on this, you have additional risk with Vanguard that you don't have with the other two of my favorite children, Schwab and Fidelity. This is from Kay in Florida. My electric company offers a surge protection program. I live in a pretty untouched area for hurricanes, et cetera, but the program is expensive. What do you think? I don't recommend these surge protection plans from the power companies. They cost a great deal, as you said. The power company is making a huge profit on selling you the surge protection plan. You can put in your own whole house surge protection device will actually you need a licensed electrician to do so but if you're going to stay in your home a good while it's much much cheaper to do that than pay for the surge protection insurance or subscription from the power company oh you're in florida so in florida you face the ever-present threat of the afternoon thunderstorms with the lightning bolts i think that it's a good idea to have a whole house surge protection system in place this is from 
Sherry in Washington. Hello, I'm considering buying an adjustable bed. I'm finding that you need to buy an adjustable base and then a mattress and then a bed frame and all have to be compatible. I'm leaning toward the Tempur-Pedic. What are Clark's thoughts about this? Well, Tempur-Pedic is an extremely expensive product. It's one that's polarizing because of its price point. And you're talking about everything being uh, an expensive part you have to buy that has to be proprietary that works together. Before you do anything, Sherry, I want you to go read Consumer Reports has just updated their mattress ratings. And I want you to go read their mattress guide. You can get access to it if you're a library member in many jurisdictions. You can have uh, lending rights to see it for free. You can pay Consumer Reports for one-time access. You can go to a physical library branch. You can subscribe to the magazine. But I would absolutely read their comprehensive information about buying the right and best mattress before you spend the huge money you're talking about on a Tempur-Pedic. I don't have anything against Tempur-Pedic other than the price is out of my budget. I mean, we bought our last mattress and carted it home. Costco has it on sale again right now. The Novaform um, something, I should look up the actual name of it before I give it because people are going to say, why does that mattress Clark talked about? Because it is on sale right now. I can't believe, I can't remember. It is the Comfort Grand Plus, and depending on the size you get, it's 80 to $150 off for Costco members. And it's one of the compressed ones. You just go to the warehouse, you pick it up, you bring it home. You don't like it, no questions asked. Costco will give you your money back and take it back. And it's just a few hundred dollars for it. Like, uh, I think $4.99 or something like that. It's very affordable. Oh, so it depends on the size. I should give these. So if you buy a queen, which is the most popular size, it's $489. You buy a king, it is $549. And in the warehouse, it'll be cheaper. That's the delivery cost. And that is something I like for you to look at. And look at what Consumer Report says before you go spend thousands of dollars on an ultra high-end mattress. And I know there are people who believe if you buy one of these ultra high-end expensive mattresses that you will sleep better. Um, I'm going to leave that to you. So <laughs> this wraps you wouldn't up. be able to sleep. I would. I would. Well, I was trying to think. I'm always so bad at, at doing some kind of cutesy phrase. So I, I couldn't come up with anything for that because I would just be so uncomfortable seeing one come in that was a lot of money and by the way on the thing you want with all the adjustable stuff those are available at all different price points all different manufacturers but they are more than what i'm talking about with just a regular mattress this does wrap up this episode of the clark howard show i hope that you've learned something today that helps you improve your life that's what we're here for and if you've heard something that really struck a chord with you and there's a friend of yours or family member you feel could benefit, please let them know. 
because my goal is for you to feel more empowered in your life, to have more control in your life, and to have more control of your wallet. And I want to thank you for listening.